As clinicians navigate the challenges of treating acute and chronic pain during the opioid epidemic, some of them are turning to gabapentinoids, agents approved only for fibromyalgia and certain kinds of neuropathic pain. However, data supporting off-label use of gabapentinoids are sparse, and the drugs can have non-trivial side effects. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Christopher Goodman, an Assistant Professor of Clinical Internal Medicine at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine. Dr. Goodman has co-authored a perspective article about the increased prescribing of gabapentin and pregabalin for pain. Dr. Goodman, you write in your article that both prescribing of gabapentinoids and spending on these drugs have increased dramatically in recent years. Do you have a sense of how many of those prescriptions are for these off-label indications? Yes, they have risen dramatically in both volume and in spending. And just a quick disclaimer, for spending, it's a convoluted picture of where money goes for these medicines. There was a nice update on that in health affairs recently. So we'll try to just use sales and avoid the more convoluted discussion of how money is spent. So both of these drugs have entered the top 10 in volume and in sales. But in terms of specific numbers and in, in off-label use, we don't know. We used the information from the IMS data survey. That's an update published yearly. There are databases that allow you to determine the exact numbers or at least estimate off-label use. The last time somebody published about that that I could find was 2006, I believe, in archives. And that study was looking generally at off-label use of medications by prescribers. And notably, the medicine, even in 2006, that was the most commonly prescribed off-label was gabapentin at about 83%. You write that clinicians who are desperate for alternatives to opioids may prescribe gabapentinoids when NSAIDs are contraindicated or when NSAIDs and acetaminophen may be not strong enough. So what other treatment options are there? What can they turn to in those situations? Treating pain is difficult, and we tried to acknowledge that in our article. The options are limited, at least in sort of the real-world approach. When you read these guidelines for various forms of pain or this more broad category of chronic non-cancer pain, it's emphasized to consider multidisciplinary, multimodal approaches. Some of those approaches include exercise therapy, physical therapy, even things like yoga, which had a recent study in Boston that showed it was equivalent to physical therapy. So there are some non-pharmacologic options. The challenge with those is that they're fairly limited as options for a large number of our patients for various reasons, whether it's financial, transportation, or perhaps even cultural, getting some folks away from the idea of medicine and into a different world, a different approach with something like yoga. You just can't get that frame shift to occur. And so probably we're reaching for medicines too often because it's easier and it's the quicker thing to do, and perhaps it's also what our patients expect. Some of these other medicines are beyond the gabapentinoids, are SSRIs and TCAs and muscle relaxants, all of which have their own set of potential side effects. As you note in your article, the manufacturers of both Neurontin, which is the original branded gabapentin, and Lyrica, or pregabalin, at one point paid settlements for improper off-label marketing. Did those cases have any effect on the prescribing patterns? That's a good question. Apparently not. I guess that's the short answer. Just for some context for listeners, the gabapentin litigation was, at least the initial one, was settled in 2004 with the Justice Department. There was subsequent litigation that was settled with other insurers in 2014. 
and then pregabalin was settled in 2009. Those were both landmark cases for different reasons. The gabapentin was the first time the False Claims Act was used as sort of a novel way to go after the pharmaceutical industry for this off-label strategy of pushing their medicines. And then the pregabalin was notable for it being the largest settlement for the pharmaceutical industry at the time. There was a publication around 2011 in Health Affairs that looked at prescribing rates. Now, they didn't use a graph that looked at volume, so I can't directly compare the IMS to what they were using. But in any case, they showed that these gabapentinoids were rising, and then there was a dip right after these settlements. Of course, at that time, lots of press coverage about this, which really isn't the case. It seems to have sort of faded into (laughs) distant memories. So perhaps there was a dip then, but... I think the trend then recontinued because we're at 64 million prescriptions last year for gabapentin. In the year 2000, at least from some data we have from Pfizer that came out of the litigation, in the year 2000, there were 900,000 prescriptions for gabapentin. So from 900,000 to 64 million, maybe there was a dip around the time of these settlements, but clearly the trend continued. So you write that clinicians are probably influenced by guidelines and review articles that endorse gabapentinoids for any pain that's perceived to be neuropathic. What's the basis for those endorsements, and should the guidelines be revisited? That's a challenging one. There is a discrepancy between what the FDA has said is reasonable to use gabapentin and pregabalin for and how the guidelines write about them. And then, of course, this longer history of physicians using medicines for off-label use, regardless of what the FDA or guidelines may say. I don't know what this easy fix is on that, because certainly the people that write our guidelines are experts in the field. The culture, at least nationally, is better, at least in terms of how we approach at least reporting conflicts of interest among guideline writers. There was just another update to Cochrane's review of gabapentin and chronic pain. And certainly these guys all know what they're doing and have reached this conclusion that it's reasonable. And there's multiple components of the challenge. One, we don't know what kind of long-term effects these medicines may have. There are interactions with other medicines. There's sort of this real-world use of these medicines in patients with multimorbidity. So while these medicines might be okay as a trial, and that's how it's often referred to as in the guidelines, I think more often than not, people are just sort of ending up and staying on these medicines, and that's what we have much less information about. So, of course, I think it's hard to challenge these expert guideline writers, and there seems to be at least some evidence there in terms of some of these specific indications where they've been studied, but larger issues remain. So you talk about long-term effects. How much do we know about the potential risk of addiction and abuse with gabapentinoids? That literature is fairly nascent. We're only beginning to come to grips with potential risks. Now, I think there are eerie similarities between how opioids were sold and then only now we're dealing with this huge epidemic. I don't think we'll be at that point someday with the gabapentinoids. It seems really unlikely. But similar in the sense that these were really pushed onto prescribers in unethical ways and were sort of slowly catching up to what the risk actually is. There were two pretty good surveys, one last year in the journal Addiction and then one this year in the journal Drugs. They give numbers that are pretty close. I mean, they had the same data to work with. And they said that probably 1% of the general population is suffering from some form of misuse or abuse of these medicines. And it seems to be more common in people who have prescriptions for other narcotics or opioids or benzodiazepines or other medicines like those. And there's sort of a growing 
amount of reports in law enforcement data about diversion, autopsy reports of gabapentin being found in patients who died from overdose. It's still all fairly new, and then I think the added challenge is it's hard to really parse out how much is from gabapentin or how much is from these other medicines that we have these patients on or comorbidities that are present. So finally, are there times when it's appropriate to prescribe gabapentinoids for these off-label indications? And if so, how should physicians make the determination when to use and when not? Absolutely. As I said, we have a number of guidelines now recommending their use and the clinical trials do suggest some benefit, at least for the postherpetic neuralgia, maybe for painful diabetic neuropathy. Pregabalin has some evidence in fibromyalgia and spinal cord injury as well. So at least in those specific indications, I think we can feel more comfortable. It's those times where we're reaching for it beyond we're kind of stretching these murky pain syndromes to fit into neuropathic pain where we probably need more caution. But certainly, trials of these medicines are reasonable, but I think we need to do it with a growing recognition of the potential harm that we're introducing, and also remember that these should be trials, and if they aren't going to work or there's going to be evidence of harm, then they should be ending those trials and going with other options. Thank you, Dr. Goodman.